hey, Doug. <laughs> oh, oh, hey, Karen. Did you forget that we were doing this podcast? What happened? <laughs> yeah, no, the, the recording light, just the, the recording and the, it just, it just fucked with my head for a minute. Oh, and it's so funny because I saw the thing go from starting the recording to Karen is recording the call and, and like the timing could not have been more spot on this you started speaking exactly when that change occurred and I thought oh what timing on Karen well yeah I think I think my I think my good timing tripped me up because I'm never I never have good timing well I haven't really noticed that as a problem before so oh, thank carry you. on hey so happy first week of coup yeah so so okay guys we recorded this a week ago, the last one we recorded a week ago, which Tuesday. was yeah. Tuesday, the day before a lot of stuff happened in D.C. So had we recorded it any later, you probably would have heard us trying to be a bit more sensitive or acknowledge anything that happened on Capitol Hill. Um, so if you're wondering why you were listening to this thing sort of later last week and we didn't mention it, that's why. So now yeah. here we are, six days out from the larger fracturing of our democracy, and I don't really have anything to say about it. Um, people so aren't suddenly a-holes, um, but we want you. We do want to acknowledge that we are aware that there are great things happening in this country, and all we can do is be an escape from it. All we can do is talk about Melrose Place. So I have a coup question. <laughs> I don't like to think I'm the expert, but go for it. Okay, so I was talking to my therapist today, as one does, and um, and she said something like, well, you know, she said something like, well, we had a coup attempt, and then she goes, no, we're in the middle of a coup. Of course, you know, and it was, you know, of course you're going to feel these things because we're in the middle of a coup. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. But then I'm like, holy shit, the coup's not over. Well, that's the thing. We don't know when it's done until it's over. So if no other sort of protest or crime or shift of the government happens, like we can keep looking back on last week and saying that was the coup, that was the attempt, that was the one high crime. But there may be more, in which case like this whole prolonged moment of history I think is ultimately looked at as the coup. So I think you can safely say as long as he who shall not be named keeps keeping his perch and saying things like, I love you to the horrible people and to the people that are trying to do, you know, more justified things being like, you're making me angry and you're messing with the 25th amendment and the first amendment and blah, 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 blah. Like, I think you could safely say that is insightful language from a president who is trying to do things to destabilize the forthcoming presidency uh, and therefore could still be an ongoing coup. Gotcha. Okay. Couple thoughts and then we'll move on to the happy and then you, things. And then you have to call your, your therapist. Then I have to call my therapist back. Um, I'm worried about Biden. Like I'm like, like I'm like so I'm like actually worried about him and Kamala Harris. Like I am like actually worried about their physical safety right now. Um, and part of me is like, please don't go to the United. Like, why are we still doing this inauguration outside? Why can't we just have like a little private ceremony? In the, you know, <laughs> in the Oval Office, safe from all the crazies. Um, you know, so that's that's number one. 
Um, I'm having anxiety about that. And uh, I had a number two and I forgot what that would have been. So we can just move on until it pops into my head. Uh, okay. If it comes back to you, definitely interrupt ourselves. Yeah. Um, because it may be a more interesting question than my questions about this week's episode. That's a tease. Um, but I will say this. I don't have anxiety, per se, about it. My anxiety is really only ever about my world, not the world at large. And there's enough there. Um, but I have thought often, yes, I think safety for Biden and safety for Kamala Harris um, are, are real concerns. And um, I, I also think, why can't we just do a virtual inauguration this year? Even if some people want to say, well, then the bad guys went like, fuck it, just say there's COVID and there's only so many, you know, National Guard people that can come yeah. out even when you do call on them. And, and it doesn't have to be a live open air thing. I agree. But what I will say that I hope may, may assuage your anxiety a bit is I had the same fears for eight years going into Obama. Because I was still aware that there were plenty of people around the country that were not cool with him being president. And and luckily, I, those instances did not happen. Now, we're, yeah, in, a different, but we're in a different, more heated moment yeah, with the polarization. Yeah. I, I, I get that. And I also think, too, like, I mean, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, like yes. the fact that there are Literally, so many yeah. Capitol Police officers that are being you know, investigated and suspended and all. And it's like, whoa, this. Yeah. I mean, this was very clearly like hard, probably inaccurate to say an inside job, but everything is connected. Right. And then I read that. I don't know if you saw, I read a news story. I don't remember where, but it was, you know, reputable news source. It wasn't like the tinfoil hat people. Um, that could be even in the reputable ones uh, <laughs> these days. I know, right? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Um, that Biden's uh, Secret Service security team are the same ones that guarded him when he was in the Obama White House because he, like, the Secret Service has now become untrustworthy because some of them are like kind of all in with Trump for some reason, which I don't know how he's like giving everybody Corona. Um, <laughs> I had heard that. About, I knew that about Biden and the Secret Service. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so it's a little like, it just feels like this is a very unsafe moment for, I mean, it's been an unsafe mo moment for a while for a lot of people. It, it is an unsafer moment. For sure, right. But now. yeah, it feels like this is like now and because we could even kind of pretend like, oh, it's so bad and he's so awful, but at least he's not that bad. But now it's that bad, and it's no, like, it well, what's bad. left? What's next? Yes, yeah. it is that. It yeah, is that. Like it is. He is that bad. Oh God! Thank God we have Melrose Place. Yeah. So you guys, a little poli-sci lesson uh, at the forefront of our Melrose recap this week. You're welcome. We do it for you. But now now let's get to the good stuff. Also done for you. Okay, the good stuff. Season Does that five. mean you think there is good stuff in this I episode? I loved this episode. Oh, I have to say I am surprised. Really? Yes. Maybe I um, underestimate your your feelings about this part level? of the season. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there were a couple of things. Like, of course, there's plenty that I could live without. But 
on the whole, I kind of felt like we're still having some great forward progress with these storylines. I see us marching toward something rather mm-hmm. than being mm-hmm. stagnant. Um, and yeah, no, we're at that part of the season where, for better or worse, the writers have really accelerated um, where, we, where we're going and how we're getting there. And there were some zingers in here, too. Like There are, and I think we get more of those in future episodes as well. And also, um, you know, Heather Locklear remains in top form. She is actually changing my allegiance at the moment. She is more of a delight to war- watch than our dear Sid. Is Heather Locklear more of a delight, or is Amanda more of a delight right now for you? I guess it's Amanda is more of a delight, but I really feel like... But Heather Locklear is playing her so good now that it's part of it. She is owning it. I mean, she is, like, really in her element um, with this side of Amanda, with, you know, what we're seeing. I have a dumb question. It's a general one. Because it bothers me when I read reviews where they say, like, oh, you can obviously tell the performer doesn't want to be there. Or you can obviously tell how much fun the performers are having. I don't actually think you can tell that most of the time. Because there are retakes and editing and and Mm. no one's really clairvoyant, that sort of thing. But I think it's safe to say Heather Locklear is having a lot of fun with the Amanda stuff right now. It appears that she is. And if she's not, then Amanda's having a lot of fun with the Amanda stuff. I guess. Right? Yeah. Sure, yeah. why not? Um, um, and it's, oh, go ahead. And, you know, the only thing I, I will say that it makes me... Well, I had... It was a question mark kind of towards the beginning of the episode, but I feel like it, the question might have resolved. I was a little bit worried that now with the Peter, Amanda, Taylor, Kyle storyline for the most part done because now everybody knows and everybody's getting a divorce right that Amanda might take a back seat for a bit but it doesn't seem like that's uh that's gonna happen no it's almost like they were putting her in the reserves and now they've kickstarted a new Amanda yes yeah because at the beginning of the episode and I was kind of thinking well where does she go from here you know um the divorce is happening. She's divorcing Peter. Like that's a thing. And, um, and I was a little bit worried that she'd be sidelined, but it doesn't look like that's happening. Yeah. In fact, it's freeing for, I think all of our characters now that Kyle and Taylor are no longer and Peter and Amanda are no longer, we're getting better stuff. I'd say maybe with all of them, but I think it's better stuff, particularly for Amanda and for Kyle. I mean, Taylor is kind of the same. She was, you know, a vixen who's going to drive things. But she's still essentially an island. Um, Peter, they're doing this dark side thing that they're semi-exploring. But but the Amanda stuff that's happening right now is actually a transformation of sorts. Now, of course, there were your usual Melrose missteps. We have a couple of storylines where they are kind of forcing um, things that, you know, they're like uh, things are cropping up that, something never happened and they're kind of rewriting history in one storyline. Um, and that would be the Matt storyline. And then, um, and then there is something very convenient happened in the, in the Sam storyline that we'll learn about, um, uh, coming, coming from her past that we never, ever, ever got an inkling of. 
Well, I have things to say about that, too. So once again, we have a Melrose rewrite of history. And I just wish that, you know, readers would be more forgiving of my books. (laughs) (laughs) If I tried to sandwich in a plot line with absolutely no buildup whatsoever. (laughs) Here's another question. I feel like 25 years ago, a timing of the episodes we discussed, I feel like readers also would have been more forgiving of your books. I feel like everyone comes with knives sharpened in ways now that they didn't for, you know, for all forms of entertainment across all genres. Um, There's an interesting point. And media. Hmm. I mean, and what do you think? Do you think that's kind of the rise of the social networks and everybody's a critic? Or do you think this was coming before that? Um, I think it's probably more column A. I think the more connected we have become and the more I, the more stuff that everyone has been able to see and read across the internet has shown people how to be like BS critics, how like to, to take whatever you want and sort of uh, dissect it rightly or wrongly, knowingly or unknowingly um, in an informed way. And I think it just sort of has snowballed from there that now there's more armchair critics. They think they know more. They get off on saying how much they know uh, than they ever did before. I think there used to be a genuine thrill in sitting back and being surprised by things. And I think now everyone is like, I'll read the Wikipedia summary before I watch the movie or read the book, which is, I think, a step more than you take, which is just, I'll read the last page first. Um, I think there's a certain morbid um, glow that people take in, in, it's like a form of ownership in being like, I'm so smart, I know how to, to write this better. I know how to be better than this, and I'm going to tell you all about it. Yeah, something, know, something like that. It's so funny that we're having this conversation, because this is something that I've been I actually think thinking about for a couple of days. Um, Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, just, I mean, not not because of anything that has happened. I mean, you know, coup. Um, but I think just to get my mind, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't know what prompted the thought, but I was just starting to come around to, you know, the whole idea of, like, citizen critic, right? And I think that people review work from a place of jealousy. I agree. Rather than a place of wonder and oh this is I think this is what prompted my sort I was on one of my walks one of my long walks and just kind of like ruminating in my head like what separated like what separates Jesse Green of the New York Times from the dude on the internet right Mm -hmm. um apart from the New York Times duh but you know I like to I like to assume and I could be absolutely wrong I don't know um that you know, professional critics or critics that know what they're doing approach everything. And Ben Brantley has said this in a few exit interviews that I read when he left the Times. Um, he's He went into every theater and sat down with a sense of wonder, or that's what he, he aimed to do. He never wanted to sit down in his theater seat and look at the stage and be like, okay, now prove it. Right. You right. know, he right. always exactly. went in there. Yes hopeful and and cheering for the work and I kind of feel like that's the thing that's missing 
from the sort of armchair critics that because I love social media. I love that we do have the armchair critics because I do feel like a lot of times the critical establishment is out of touch with the general public um, or it can be. But I do feel like there there people that are just, you know, on the internet or whatever writing these reviews are not necessarily coming from that place of I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to see what you have. And they're more coming from a, a, more, a much more cynical place, I think. Oh, 100%. And, and I think that's equally true of the professional critics and the internet, you know, armchair critics. I think it's, I think it's both. Um, and it's more about them having a forum to turn things back yeah. to them and what they know and what their thoughts are. Um, but I once, I gave an interview like seven or eight years ago, which said something similar to that Brantley anecdote, which is that every time I see anything, whether it's I'm at a movie or at a show or watching TV, where I always have the thought in my head at some point, it goes, I'm so lucky I get to see this. Mm. And, and I, I never have lost it. But, but sometimes I had to question if that thought, if I meant it the same way I used to, if I meant it as strongly as I used to. But I say that as a means of also uh, saying, I still consider myself to be one of those people that always goes in rooting for the thing to succeed yeah. um, for there's multiple been, reasons. There, there's been this sort of conversation going around in like author circles when we're kind of lamenting the reviews left on Amazon, or I got a one-star review, or you know, whatever, whatever that is. And a lot of writers are now saying, "Well, it act these reviews actually say more about the person reviewing than they do about your they work." They do. They are and very. And I think reasonable. that that is yeah. accurate. Yeah. yeah, I think that that is accurate, and maybe that is the difference between the profession. You know what I mean? Like there, but again, like I think you could say that with the professional critics because we all come you know, we all bring our own baggage to whatever we're looking at right like we yeah. our our lived experience is all very different and so the way that you know Ben Brantley or Jesse Green or whoever is going to sit down and look at a piece of of whether it's theater book whatever is going to be very different than my perspective because we have completely you know we had completely different lives yeah, and also how you get there and how hard it was to get there, I think, will also determine, uh, you know, the sanctity with which you treat that position. Um, oh, that's interesting. That's actually very if interesting. If you really had to work your way up, you were probably going to have a sense of gratitude to be there and appreciate how important what you're having to say may or may not be if not to a work as a whole, to somebody somewhere. Now, when I used to review off-off-Broadway shows going back 15, almost 20 years, I saw so many things that sometimes I was the only one, or one of two people in the audience. Um, shows that no one would ever heard of, written by people no one's ever heard of, starring people no possibly ever. no one's ever heard of. <laughs> but you know what? The fact that I reviewed them and the fact that I gave them either very good reviews or, or very you know, sort of sound arguments about what they were doing um, made the difference between them getting an audition or getting to see an agent or not. 
right. um, and which meant even then at a level most people would consider invisible, it actually served a very constructive purpose. Right. I think what you lack in a lot of discussion, and I'll say discussion because like that sort of can be an umbrella term for whether it's Twitter writing or internet published reviews or Amazon reviews or print slash digital stuff at a higher uh, level, any of that discussion, what you often lack now is the constructive element. It's usually cynical. It's often snarky. Um, obviously, this whole conversation is one that, that probably belongs in Hollywood Boulevard. Um, maybe we should direct our listeners back here, too. But um, <laughs> uh, but what you don't get a lot is constructive criticism, because what you get a lot of a lot of is, hey, isn't this funny? Hey, look what I got away with saying. Hey, yeah. don't I impress you with this reference that I know? Yeah. Hey, isn't it funny that I can throw this many F-bombs in, in what I'm writing? That sort of thing. It's, it's revealing about the one, whoever is writing the thing, because it's showing, rightly or wrongly, they need and want an outlet. And they take it, but they end up sort of taking the outlet hostage, because it's, it can be disrespectful uh, to the subject matter at hand. Right. But I think that person was right, that it says more about you know, the critic, the, the person, than it often does about the material that, that it's supposed to be about, which yeah. has been a losing game, I think, um, across the board for a, a few years now. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I just have to sort of wonder where, is there, is there going to, in another 10 years, will there be room for a professional critical voice? I'm not sure. Uh, I just think they will be the minority. I think you will have your handful of things that are still considered gets and that mm. people turn to, and then the rest will be sort of democratized out because yeah. that's where, because everyone else is doing it for free and you don't know, you no longer need to have studied and worry about breaking in, mm -hmm. like say me, like I've done for the last 20, 25 years. Um, now it's just, well, the opportunity is there because there's room on the internet for all these things. Um, you create right. your digital footprint saying things and then you're left with like, you know, the New York Times and New York Magazine and the Washington Post and two or three other things, whatever. Um, and it's, that's kind of it. I just see it getting narrower. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it kind of feels like the begin like listings. Do you, uh, when, when, list when you started to sort of go, Oh, oh, you know, like you started to sort, you know, people would sort of come in and be like, well, what about a listing? And I'd be looking at them like, where? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't exist anymore, you know? Um, and I, I almost feel like this is like, it kind of feels like the beginning of when that started, when the listing started disappearing. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, I remember, so this started 12, 12 and a half years ago with the last economic uh, crisis that, mm -hmm. you know, people are actually able to analyze the worth, in, you know, numerically of, yeah. of arts writing. So that's when we saw a lot of people start to lose their jobs and not find new footing. And, and though it's been that long, it still feels like it's yesterday because we're right there. Yeah. Because we could just continue to see the drop. And it's sort of ironic because in... The olden times, like originally, like originally a newspaper was a newspaper and that was it. It was just news. And I think then in the 
thirties, maybe I, I, I might have the time wrong, the timeline wrong, but there, there was a discovery that the advertisers basically having arts reporting and lifestyle reporting was good for advertising because then you could get a Duncan Hines or, you know, for the food section or a Macy's for the fashion section. Like you could get, you could place their advertisements next to editorial that was expanding your readership and therefore expanding the audience for advertisers, which was the name of the game. All this was to sell advertising space. Macy's did not want to be next to, you know, a grisly murder. Yeah, you know, they didn't want their brand associated with some grisly murder on the news pages. Right. And so it moved to, so this was, you know, this was actually like a really big money driver. And it's sort of interesting to see how now arts and lifestyle coverage is a money suck and not a money driver anymore. Yep. That, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. So I have a proposition. Okay. Why don't we keep going here? Let's make this our Hollywood Boulevard. Talk about a couple of the things we thought we were gonna talk about there. And then let's do a U-turn and go back to the block. Um, And we'll just repeat the little thing we said about Heather Locklear. So you guys get a preview. Um, Cause this, if we make it Hollywood Boulevard, you guys are getting a lot of (laughs) real world and now time information. Okay. All right. So, what are you talking about? Uh, for what, what? What did you want to talk about with the Boulevard this week? I was going to talk about a movie that just dropped on Netflix last week called Pieces of a Woman, starring Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf. I don't know anything about this one. It's about a woman, and she and falls into a lot of pieces, and <laughs> a whole town has to get back together to put her together no so she um, like humpy dumpty like she literally falls into pieces or no it was a bad joke okay. she is okay. not really like humpty dumpty gotcha. um uh vanessa kirby who is probably best known to netflix audiences and audience of this podcast um she was the original princess margaret in the first two seasons of the crown opposite claire foy um was really 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 good um, and is very good. And so this is a nice showy vehicle for her, uh, a fairly indie movie about a young woman and, uh, and she and her husband are expecting a baby and what the, the movies, you know, like the coup de théâtre, whatever for film, you would say, is the very beginning. It's a very, um, long home birth sequence. Uh, where you really feel what the character is going through during childbirth. Um, Spoiler alert, though, this all happens in what is, you know, the cold open of the film. It does not end well. And the rest of the movie is about this woman and her partner's different journeys through grief in the subsequent, like, eight months following um, the loss of this, this baby. Okay. Um, so what most of the buzz, uh, that this film has kind of acquired over the last year as it is an Oscar contender, uh, is, is largely about that, that big sort of, I don't know if it's 20 minutes long opening scene that looks like it's a continuing sequence of, of the childbirth, um, which is effective, but you know, not, 
not harrowing necessarily. And that's perhaps it hits close to home because someone has a personal connection to it. Um, um, but the bulk of the movie is really about, you know, how do you go on? And I just think that the way that the movie is structured, not, not just the specific script, though there are issues there too, but the structure of it kind of fail the whole film. It kind yeah. of fails this woman's journey. How, how, how is it structured? So right after the childbirth sequence, we jump ahead three weeks. We get about six or seven scenes that are each staggered about a month apart from there that show the, the two leads in sort of like different phases of their life. So we get none of the immediate aftermath of the delivery. Uh, we don't know exactly what has happened, what has happened between them. Um, there is a civil trial uh, uh, against the midwife who was not the midwife that they had planned to work with, but since that one was unavailable, this was a recommended replacement. Um, and so, you know, the, the script builds up to a trial scene for, for the Vanessa Kirby character to, sort of, to testify about how she feels about the guilt of this, this midwife. And this is a very prominent case. It's all over the news. This film is set in Boston. Um, but because we don't know anything about these people as individuals or as a couple before we first meet them in, in the, the childbirth sequence, mm -hmm. we don't really know what they are to each other or what they have to lose. So the problems that they may have, um, for instance, as the, we don't learn that he's not the husband, but a partner, uh, the Shia LaBeouf character, until we're about two hours into the movie, um, which is a deliberate choice, but not one that I'm sure sheds any light, at least not on the script at hand. Um, you know, he has a, he is sober, he has a past with addiction, um, and this, this triggers those things. Um, we learned that Vanessa Kirby's mother, who is played by Ellen Burstyn, mm -hmm. which is a coup, but it's also a curious casting choice because there's almost 60 years of difference between her and Vanessa Kirby, and she's playing the mother. Um, it feels deliberate because that character, the, the mother, played by Ellen Burstyn, is dealing with dementia and also talks about having survived the Holocaust, which are different and competing arcs for a character mm. that's only in about three scenes. Um, and, you know, we just don't really know what drives any of these people, if we did. Like, this is not necessarily a story that makes for a closed storytelling, like a film or a short story. This is an arc in an ongoing series. Whether it's a daytime soap or a nighttime drama, this is like, okay, and during one year, during one season, one of the characters endures this and we follow them through a series of episodes and then maybe this pushes them or a new, in a new direction or we see their growth or whatever and a mother figure shows up as a guest spot in one scene. This is, or you, or you have a short story where a character reflects on what has happened in a moment of transition. But this doesn't actually work for a two hour film 
because the journey, which is, which does dip into formulaic tropes, unfortunately, uh, you know, as, as real and as awful as the subject matter is, we just don't know enough about the characters. They remain ciphers to us. So, you know, they have our sympathy, but they, they can't actually have our full empathy. They're just too foreign to us. And I think that's a real problem. Vanessa Kirby is very good. For that matter, I think Shia LaBeouf is very good. Um, and, and the movie comes kind of draped in a little bit of scandal because he has even more allegations against him. So, so the press oh. push for the movie has shifted a little bit. Oh, does he? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, of, of abuse. Um, so what, what could have been, you know, a kind of a celebration about the good work of both of the leads is now shifted mostly to Vanessa Kirby, who is very good, um, and Ellen Burstyn, who I think is a little too uh, actressy for what they for what the film really calls for. Okay. Um, uh, so, so I really wanted to root for this film more than I did. And it feels like, well, how, how could you say something unsupportive about a movie that's, you know, about primarily women and about such a hor horrible thing? The, the way it is set up and the way it is delivered, I think, is defeats its own goals in the end. Um, I, I don't even think that that first sequence is necessarily as great as some people want to say it is. It's impressive to do um, an extended take sequence like that, but they've been done before. Um, the movie in the end is, is just kind of okay. Okay. And I but stand corrected. I, <laughs> I stand corrected. I actually did hear about it, and I was like, "God, that sounds awful." And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I will be skipping. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can actually talk about another Netflix movie I saw a while ago that I didn't talk about, mostly because I didn't feel like it. Though it is also mired in its own controversy. I'm going to guess that you didn't see Hillbilly Elegy with Amy Adams uh, you know, and Glenn Close. I did not, and I wanted to, and then I promptly forgot about it. Well, it's forgettable. I mean, that is, that is, that is its true original sin. Though people are crying about other things, it is a very sort of dated and very forgettable movie. So, okay. so yeah. I mean, the thing, created and forgettable. <laughs> it, it really feels like a late 80s, early 90s thing. It's the true story, and it's, yeah. um, you know, an adaptation of a memoir written by J.D. Vance. Who, I read the memoir. Oh, you read it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's not very different from the structure of the memoir, and yet it doesn't really work. Because, so the story is, the, the guys at Yale Law School gets a call that his mother, an opioid addict, has um, relapsed again. He goes to be with her and his sister, who stayed behind in, where they are in, in Ohio. And yes, it's okay. kind of dealing with her, knowing that the, eventually the very next morning, he's got to be back at an interview with the prestigious law firm by 10 a.m. So most of the movie is actually flashbacks 
to when he was younger and what it was like dealing with his mother and his grandmother. Um, and, and, and then we see a little bit of, of them in the present. There's a lot of splicing back and forth. Um, but what there isn't ultimately is any story. There's not real forward motion. It's all exposition in the form of flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So the so one movie I can compare it to is The Prince of Tides, which is through a series of scenes in the present with uh, the protagonist, played by Nick Nolte, eventually in the film, um, we also learn a lot about his family relationships, particularly with his mother and sister in the past. But there's back and forth, there's flashbacks, and there's forward movement. In Beaches, a lot of it is flashbacks told by the Bette Mither character driving to meet with her best friend, Barbara Hershey, and then they they reunite, and then you, we get a lot of forward movement that continues what's happening in their current lives. There's no forward movement here. It's all flashback, and we don't have that much to learn once we get past the first 10 or 15 minutes about these people. Mm -hmm. The scenes are largely redundant. So that's basically the movie in a nutshell. Well, I think that there were, I mean, I was a little, I don't want to say surprised, but I guess I was surprised that this was made into a film because the there wasn't much drama to the book. That's that's right. And so there's I, lots to the, the So yeah, so where's the drama in the film? It's like this guy had an addicted mom and he was essentially raised by his grandmother and they ultimately in they were in the Ohio area that is like near um Kentucky Kentucky so I guess they're in Appalachia or Appalachia adjacent adjacent I I'm not quite clear I, I I'm not quite clear if they're actually in Appalachia proper but you get the sense that that's um that that's the community um and he got and he and he made his way to to Yale, and so it's got. I mean, I guess it has the pull yourself up by the bootstraps sort of story, but ultimately, I I didn't find all of that much drama in his life. It was just oh, another 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 person with an addicted parent. Yeah, and I feel like you can get away with that in a memoir. You say, "This is who I am." Yes. This is this is where I'm from and what I know. Yes. Um, but in a film, it has to be more than that. It has okay. to be. Here is an inciting incident, and here are how things escalate, and what you can learn from it, perhaps. Right, and um, how you can, so and the change so that you make to get to the other yeah. side, and also and the changes are the part that I think are most absent from from this adaptation. I don't think he changed ultimately. Well, I mean, at some point he gets himself into the Marines and into Yale Law School, and those years are not at all covered in the book, well, and the movie. Um, so. But yeah, but I mean, ultimately, though, too, all he did was change his situation. I don't know that he had a journey as as a person. Like, it well, wasn't like he was the one that was really, the drug, a drug addict. And we see him lacking a lot of discipline in the movie to then going into to deciding to go into the Marines. We at least and we need something. I don't know. That to, feels like to segue it a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, I just didn't feel like there was enough. I mean, it was kind of like I thought the book was interesting kind of in a way that it would be like an extended profile of somebody can be interesting, but it's not necessarily. 
it doesn't necessarily make a dramatic story arc. No, and it wasn't, no, and it isn't particularly compelling, which, yeah. okay, fine. But that's not really the crime that the movie was convicted of almost sight unseen by most critics. So again, tying back to what we were saying before, which is one of the reasons I decided to talk about it here a little bit. Oh yeah. Almost every, did you, I don't know if you were even aware of, you know, a little bit of the flurry that came about, I guess about six, seven weeks ago. Yeah. I have everyone labeled the movie poverty porn and said that, you know, it's ridiculous to have these performances and the makeup of, of someone like Amy Adams who plays the mother and Glenn Close who plays the grandmother. And there is something to be said that when people take, roles because they're maybe Oscar nominatable that that you do a lot of this scenery chewing um <laughs> I mean I think yes and no you know people are like I don't know why this movie was made I don't know who this was for these are questions I hear a lot I hear a lot about say the the new Wonder Woman sequel it's it's for anyone who's going to pay a ticket to see it in the end right or going right. to make a decision and, and give you the metrics that Netflix needs to brag about whatever like it's not really made for aesthetic purposes and that may sound cynical but when you ask questions like that it's it's not made for someone who's loyal it's not made necessarily because you come from Appalachia it's not made because you read the book well you've already read the book and you know the story they don't care like how you hear the story again that's not really the thing um but but now that I've seen the movie I can say I don't get that anyone gave a responsible take on the film because the lead, the protagonist, is J.D. Vance, played by a young actor named Gabriel Basso. And I don't think I heard his name in the conversation twice. So they were all coming at it with an angle, with knives out. And, and I'm talking about the prominent ones that I read, um, including, say, like, Vulture. Uh, because this is a forgettable movie. This is a flawed movie. I'm not saying it's completely responsible in its portrayal of, you know opioid addiction or middle America. But what I am saying is from reading reviews, I didn't even know that Gabriel Basso, who I knew as a younger actor on the show, The Big C with Laura Linney, was in this, didn't know that he's actually giving quite a fine performance as the fulcrum of the activity because people were just going on and on about, you know, how overacting Glenn Close was as the grandmother under all this makeup. I'm here to say under all the makeup, Glenn Close is actually giving a very fine performance. So you may not like Glenn Close and you may dislike quote unquote poverty porn, but it's an example of people that weren't seeing things with clear eyes. And I just, right. I, I continue to see the trend of even at the highest level, people not reviewing things objectively because they come in with, you know, their own angle. And, and as someone who was once labeled the sweet critic of New York, that bothers me because then stop doing it because you're just making about having your own pulpit. And that's a problem. But again, I can't, can't recommend Hibiliology. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I guess it, I guess the, the, cause I think there's a place for that sort of criticism if it's going to be as a sort of social criticism within, with, with, or... within a think piece, right. But if you're sort of saying, okay, here's a movie review and you know how you know i think that maybe it's fine to kind of talk about it but i think ultimately you need to talk about the piece the merits on its 
own, right? You, have, you do have to separate them at the very least. But yeah. if you do a think piece, you really need to talk about it as a trend. And then you need to take four or five other examples and show how it's been done bad, how it's been done better, uh, and somewhere in the middle to show, you know, the the whole progression or regression of things. To just be like, this this offended my current sensibilities is, I think, a BS irresponsible form of any kind of journalism. Right. I mean, I guess the question, I, I guess when I was, when all of this was flurrying, and I, I can't say I paid too, too close attention to it, but I think that it, it, it does bring up a compelling question, like whose stories are being, who, who's, who gets their stories made, right? Or who gets to, who gets their yeah. stories yeah. told? Yeah, um, ongoing. Question. You know, which is, I think, very, I think that's a fair question. And I think that it is problematic, um, you know, because you do have to wonder, like, you know, why why are we telling these stories? Particularly because, again, this one wasn't that unique. Um, no. You know, and it, a, no, and it didn't really have, you know, a huge, like, roller coaster journey, you know, with right. with lots of stakes, you know, including how did he, as that may sound. Including how did he get the book deal, right? Exactly. Because At again, such a young age, yeah. Yeah, again, not that interesting. Um, I think that there are probably more interesting stories out there. And I don't know, are, are they not, you know, are these gatekeepers like not looking hard enough or are the people with the more interesting stories not up for telling them? Well, it, it can always be, you know, part of the latter. Um, but I think it's maybe they don't tell them or maybe when they do try and tell them they can't access the right people, the gatekeepers. Right. I always assume the gatekeepers are never the ones who are looking. That, You're that probably people right. bring that people bring things to them, and it's luck of the draw. Yeah, and it's how how are things brought to them that you get to break through the wall, to, to, you know, to climb over that moat. That's why I'm not a fan of gatekeepers, right? I mean, you know, and because ultimately they're not looking for new and exciting voices necessarily. They are waiting for a sure thing, right? right. Which is, I mean, I keep referring to this the wonder woman sequel but you know people you know are disappointed with it and keep going on about well how dare they meaning you know i guess warner the studio uh at at large is like the representative of of they like how could they have not you know made this better or made this more uh you know responsive to the comics or put more thought into this and the bottom line is they don't care because they don't need it to be better they just need it to be. And that is a problem with the gatekeepers. They're not typically focusing on quality. They're focusing on bottom line, as long as they have something that can fill their coffers, uh, as long as they have something that can appeal to multiple categories, to the blockbuster category, to the prestige category, then they've sort of got what they want. They don't look beneath it. Um, and that again is the whole conversation that we saw again open up this year about, well, we need different deciders, which, you know, has been a story longer than I've been a person. Right. But I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know that I, I feel I would go as far as you. I think that they care about the quality of the story that they're putting out there. 
I just think, and this is for Hollywood blockbusters in particular, the films are made by committee. There are very few directors who can go into an, you know, who can take a look at the dailies or go into an editing suite with their editor their, you know, the, with often the relationship between the director and editor is actually fascinating in terms of how they work together. Um, but ultimately there are always these executives in the room. And so a lot of times the films are, like I said, made by committee. And I think that that could be where they falter. And so I don't know, like, I think I have, I know that the people who are like making the movies have the passion for the movies and they want to create a really good, you know, a really amazing entertainment. But then there are too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, that's really who I meant. The producers, the studio heads, the development people, those those types that get in the way of, of that sort of thing. Um, which, you know, we, we're often lacking for enough sort of auteurs where, like, you're the producer and the writer and the director and really can be your own boss to, to ensure that some sort of vision gets realized. Right, right. But there's not a lot of great vision on hillbillyology. <laughs> it sounds like there's very... Little vision on hillbillyology. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, but my other point there is the performances are not really the problem, and that was sort of the headline going back towards the end of last year. So, if anyone's listening, that's that's my that's my statement. Okay. So I don't know. We got kind of dark on on our uh, the boulevard today. We did go dark. The clouds. The clouds. Uh, <laughs> really uh got ominous yeah but that's you know because we're in the middle of a coup yeah Indeed. we're cooing all right so i guess we're gonna <laughs> go in reverse to yeah. <laughs> uh to the block and yeah and back in time so yes um thanks for listening hollywood boulevarders and uh please do us a solid and follow us over to the block we will see you over there. Bye.